sad time of year to be a tomato plant, isn't it? Oh, boy. Some of you know this better than others. There's a secret Calvary Baptist Tomato Society that some of you don't know about. Some of you know this very well. Uh, Those of you that don't, though, this time of year, the cold sets in, and what was once this little plant after Mother's Day and then grew over the summer into this lush vine that was giving so many tomatoes. We have little cherry tomatoes over here and then four big tomato plants over here. It's giving so much fruit all throughout the summer. Well, the cold comes, and one cold snap just takes care of all that. They're already struggling. They're already getting moldy and, you know, stuff's kind of setting in and then the cold comes and all of a sudden this week our plants were probably, I don't know, 70% just brown and about 30% green and most of the good fruit had been picked off of them but all the nasty rotten fruit was kind of left there and uh, eventually you get to the point where you realize this thing isn't going to give forth another, another good tomato And so it's time to do whatever ritual of mourning you do and walk out uh, and you take your big bucket with you. And what you do is you pull off every last salvageable tomato. Now, when you do this, you have to watch out for the bad tomatoes because if they get on your hands, there's no soap in the universe that can take the stink off of your hands of a bad tomato. And so you're kind of, it's kind of like playing operation, like you're sticking your hand kind of in there to try to get the one good one that's left. And I did this this week and didn't have the heart to do what comes next, which is now there's nothing good left. So you yank them out of the ground, throw them in the burn pile or throw them in the trash. And maybe I'll have the heart to do that this week. Uh, So I'm out there looking at this poor little tomato plant. I have picked it clean. There are some nasty tomatoes left on it, but there are no good ones. And it's just the most pitiful sight in the world. You look at it and you're like, "Can can I just get one more? Like, can I get one more, one more good one, one more cherry, just a little one? And, and I'm looking at it, and then all of a sudden I see there is, a, there is one full cherry tomato left nestled deep behind all these nasty ones. And so I reach all the way in there, I play the operation game and get all the way around the bad ones. I'm in my favorite sweater, mind you, and, uh, and I get to this thing and I start putting pressure on it to pull it. But I realized too late that it's actually much softer than I think it is. And so I'm putting that pressure on it and... Yeah. Now you may think the moral of that story is don't wear your favorite sweater when you pick tomatoes. That's not the moral of that story. Now the reason I tell that is because that feeling you might get if you have tomatoes and you look at that vine and there's just nothing good left on it and there's a little bit of mourning in your heart. What was once a beautiful plant is now shriveled. It's decayed. It's done. Not giving good fruit. That's actually the very same way that the prophet Micah felt when he looked around the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah. Uh, It had once been this flourishing vine But now it has decayed to the point that the institutions are done and he can't find one righteous person walking the street. And so he's actually going to use the same analogy to talk about the streets of Jerusalem and the city that he wishes were still holy. As he does, it might bring up some feelings that you have about the world around us. I know some of you look around and think, man, can I find one good person out there, or one good, I don't know, voice on the news to tell me what is true? It's just so hard when we look around and we see a world around us that is, is decaying morally. If you've got feelings about that, 
what Micah is going to do is help us process those feelings, that feeling of mournfulness or maybe even that feeling of anger you get when you look around and you see the darkness in the world around us. Let's read Micah 7 verses 1 through 7 and then we'll spend the morning exploring just how that helps us process those very feelings that we have. Hear the lament of the prophet Micah. Woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have all been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against the mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are those of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The words of the Lord. Through that lament, Micah shows Christians how to react when the faithlessness around us torments our hearts. Micah has been rising up for six chapters now as a mighty prophet, declaring that there is no one like God. And in the midst of faithless prophets preaching lies, he stands up and proclaims the truth no matter what it costs him. He preaches powerful sermon after powerful sermon. And now the third of three sermons he preaches toward the end of it, he finally gives us a window into just how lonely that is. He has preached and preached and preached and nobody's turning. All of the wickedness around him has stayed just how it is. He does not yet know that King Hezekiah will repent at his preaching. But as for now, he hangs his head and tells us just how lonely it is to preach faithfully amidst a people that will not hear it and will not turn. He looks around and laments at the streets of Jerusalem and what he is finding. He cannot find a righteous person. He cannot find a righteous institution. It is like that tomato vine that all the good fruit has been picked off of it. It is producing no good. And so he knows what the Lord is going to do soon. He's going to yank the vine up and put it in the burn pile. Micah's heart is broken over this. And as such, he gives us, Christians, the holy people of God, the remnant that he has left here on this earth, a grid for how to process when we feel the same way about the world around us. Some of you may look around and feel the same thing about the immorality that's rampant around you or when you try to find something righteous to watch on Netflix and you just can't find anything. It can break the heart. It can make you sad. And Mike has given you a grid here for how to process it. 
Before we get into what he says, though, we've got to destroy a, a myth that is common these days. Uh, there, there's a common myth in the country right now that our country is going the wrong direction and it's those other people's fault. Do you hear that a lot? 85% of our country right now believes it's going the wrong direction. And I know this, it can't be the other 15%'s fault. Right? Some of the blame must rest on the 85% who see that the country is going the wrong direction. But we have hearts that would like to believe that I'm the only righteous one, right? That I'm better than everyone else. And so it's very easy for the human heart to look around and say, boy, this place is really going downhill. And whatever's wrong with it, it's, it obviously can't be me, right? That would be silly. And then with our hearts preaching that message to us, there are two strong voices in the political and news world right now that are essentially using the same rhetoric, just about different issues. The, the rhetoric is, we have some good things and we are losing them. We're going the wrong direction because those other people are taking it from us. doesn't matter if you're listening to left media or right media, that's the message you're hearing. We have good things, those bad people are taking it from us. So when you've got a heart that's telling you, it's everybody else's problem, I'm not the problem, and when you've got voices telling you, we aren't the problem, not people like me and you, it's people like them over there, we're in a very good position to believe the myth that the country's going the wrong direction, it's everybody else's fault. Now, what we have to do first, before we can take up Micah's lament, is we have to replace that myth with the Bible's truth. The Bible doesn't say it's everybody else's fault. The Bible says we have all turned aside. Together, we have become corrupt. There's no one righteous, not one, right? And so if the culture around us is headed the wrong direction, first thing we have to do is look and see the picture of the darkness in our own heart. If you're seeing darkness around you, you're seeing a picture of the darkness that you were born into in your own heart. And this may bring up for you memories of things you have done in the past or thoughts of things you're even doing right now that if you stand before God with us here as we look to him, we would have to say, we have not lived according to his ways, right? A holy God must be righteous in how he handles what I have done against him. And so here's what you need. You can't go back and undo what you've done. What you need is for someone else to live a perfect life. And then for that person to offer their life in the place of your life. And then you need God in heaven to say, yes, I, I will receive that. I'll receive that person's life sinless as credit for your life. And then the other thing you need is for somebody who never sinned to, to die and pay for your sins willingly. And then for God in heaven to look at that person and say, okay, I'll receive that. I will receive your death as payment for his or her sins. And the good news is that that is precisely what God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the good news of the gospel, that God became man and, and he lived on 
earth. Uh, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he's willing to look to his father. He's seated right next to his father on a throne right now, and he's willing to look to his father and say, Father, will you receive my perfect life uh, in place of theirs and give them credit for my righteousness? And Father, will you receive my willing death that I died on the cross at Calvary and then I rose three days later? Will you receive that as payment for their sins? And the Father is willing to look at him and say, yes, I will receive that. I will count them righteous because of what you have done. What you must do to receive this is what the Bible calls faith. This is trusting in Jesus to indeed be this very thing for you. To look to him and say, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Would you forgive me? And can I be counted righteous in you, Jesus? If you're willing to trust him like that, and I call you to trust him like that even right now. If you're willing to do that, two things will happen. One, you will be counted as holy and blameless immediately. And so many people sitting next to you that this is true of us. The Lord looks at us, and we are receiving credit for what Jesus did perfectly. And we are receiving no punishment for our sin because it's paid for. So you get that. You get counted holy and righteous in the beginning. And then the other thing that he does is he actually begins to make you actually holy in life. Right? He starts to change you. He gives you a new heart. He makes you want to do the things in his word. And next thing you know, you look back and you're thinking, I am a different person than I used to be. And after some time in this, you're a mature Christian. You're walking in righteousness. You still sin, but when you do, you confess it to God and you're quick to turn from it. Then God has made you into somebody like Micah. Right now, we can look at Micah's lament and say, because God has made me holy and because God is making me holy. Now I look around and I see the darkness around us and I don't blame it on other people. Now I just weep because it just breaks my heart. It makes me sad. Now when I see fatherlessness, I don't get angry at men. I weep for children because we see the carnage of the darkness in our world. Now, if that's what that's done to you, if it's tormented your heart, if you look around and you you shed tears over what's going on around you, uh, we can walk through now Micah's images and get a picture for something of what's going on here. Let's look through verses 1 to 6, most of the text. And I just want to show you all the images he's using and then draw out some connections that you might sense already in, in the modern world. So at first, he uses the picture that I used at the beginning. of the, I used a tomato vine. He uses grape and fig, a plant that is picked clean, right? There's not one good piece of fruit left on the plant. And he's just looking at it, hungry for one good fig, especially a first ripe fig. Those are the good ones if you've never had a fig tree before. Those are the good ones, the ones that just become ripe. They're almost green. He just wants one so there's nothing but rotten figs left. He says this is comparable, we actually see this in, uh, in verse 2, uh, to the fact that the godly, he says, have perished from the earth. So he cannot find a righteous person in the same way that I cannot find a good tomato on my vine right now. Uh, and the first ripe fig is probably an image of, of a ruler or a king, right? You want the king to be the best and most noble person in the land, and there's not one of those either. There's not a righteous ruler either. He says they, they all lie in wait for blood. This is the second half of verse 2. And, and each hunts the other with a net. So they are 
hiding out, thinking to themselves, who can I hurt next? All right, let me get, let me get the, the tools ready so we can kidnap another person, so we can hurt another person, destroy another person's business. This is just the common things happening on the streets of Jerusalem. And verse 3, he says, their hands are on evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. So these are people who are not learning how to do skilled labor. They're not studying and saying, how can I get better at, at accounting? Or how can I get better at what I do? They're saying, how can I get better at, at wickedness? How can I get better at evil and do it well? Uh, we might think of people today, there are people who stay up all night and just eat can after can of tuna fish to learn how to get better at hacking so they can break into someone's computer, take down a company that's doing good work and hold them hostage, studying and studying and studying, saying, how can I get a little bit better at computer hacking? We might look back at some of his pictures of looking at that vine and finding no good fruit. Uh, And it makes me think of the way that sometimes young women will be looking for husbands and feel just the same way. Like, is there a good man left that I can marry? It's so hard to find a good man out there. Just like Micah out there looking at that vine, is it all rotten fruit left? He says, the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. We saw that in the news over the last two weeks. Vladimir Putin standing up and saying, if I don't get Ukraine, I will set off a nuclear bomb if I have to. Right? The great man uttering the evil desire of his soul. It doesn't make news as often, but we might think of Kim Jong-un in North Korea walking by a school and seeing 12-year-old girls and saying, I want that one and that one and that one. Go get them for me. And they pick them up right from the school and take them into his harem. The great man uttering the evil desire of his soul. These things happen today as well. In verse 4, he compares the best of them like a briar. He says the best of them is like a thorn bush. Right? The very best one is going to cut you if you touch it. Back in David's day, he used this image to talk about when a king has to deal with, with uh, shady people. Uh, you know, part of a king's job is to find the bad people and, 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 and get them out of the, of the world. And he says, when you've got to deal with them, though, he says, they're like thorn bushes. They're like briars. Use a tool and put on gloves when you deal with them because shady people are going to or basically going to cut you when you're trying to deal with them. Some of you have been in leadership and you know what it's like to be leading someone who is shady, leading someone who doesn't have good morals, and you're trying to handle the situation, but you know it could come back on you because that's how these people are. Well, David says that about the most wicked people in his day. By the time Micah's day comes around, he says, the best person around here is like a thorn bush. Right? So this is the equivalent of a yard where the thorns and the weeds have, have taken over And this is why there's no good fruit left. The thorns and the weeds are choking out all of the fruit. And then he laments that their destruction is coming, right? Just like this week, I'm going to root up my tomato vines, and I'm going to throw them probably in the trash because we don't have a burn pile. You guys might use a burn pile. He says that the day when Jerusalem gets uprooted and thrown in the burn pile, it's coming. It's coming. Then he switches to different institutions. Before it was the streets of Jerusalem, now it's the homes. First, friendship and and neighbors have broken down. He says in verse 5, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. 
You may trust a friend with your secret, he's going to betray you. You can't even trust your own neighbors. This makes me think of some of you are putting ring doorbells on your, on your door, right? So that you can have a video of what goes on right outside your front door because you cannot trust what your next door neighbors are doing in front of your front door. You put no trust in a neighbor, you can have no confidence in a friend. And then maybe the most hard to hear, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. He may mean a wife here, he may mean an illicit relationship, as must have been common in that culture. You can't even trust the person whose chest you're laying your head on, wishing you could trust. You may not know this, but it is very much this way today. Outside the church, as you know, sexual ethic is very different outside the church. Uh, and the kind of common expectation, at least the way that people explain it to me, is uh, you're, you're supposed to sleep together after the second date, right? It's expected. So a woman after the second date is expected to have sex with a man. And if she's really great, it's actually like the first date. That's really what you're going for. And so these women are feeling pressure, like just for going on a few dates, I'm going to sleep with these men. But there's a really wicked flip side to it. They don't know these men. They don't trust these men. And they don't know when the men are making secret video recordings of it, as happens now, so that if things ever go south to take vengeance on the woman, they can post the video on the internet and bring shame to her among everyone she knows. So, so here are women who are, who are feeling pressured to do these things with men that they cannot trust. And they don't even know if the man they're sharing a bed with is going to betray them in such a deeply intimate way. Very similar to Micah saying, guard the doors of your mouth from the one that lies in your arms. He goes on to talk about the family. The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. We see this today. Children will grow up, and then they will let their parents pay for an Ivy League education and then once they're graduated, they'll say, okay, mom and dad, if you won't affirm my new gender identity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disown you. And this happens regularly now. I can think of, I was talking with someone this week, uh, a widow in our church in her home, and she, uh, she pointed to a picture of her late husband in his World War II uniform. He's a World War II vet, and he's looking young and strapping and like the hero that the men of that generation were. And she points to him, and she says, it is so hard for our generation to have built all this and watch your generation squander it on pain pills and porn. Um, you can put no trust in a neighbor anymore. You can have no confidence in a friend Parents spend years pouring into their kids to find their kids betraying them. Some of you know just what this feels like. So, to be clear, I don't think we are in the exact same place that Jerusalem was in. But we can see connections, can't we? And I can see on your faces we're brokenhearted about what's going on around us. What's going on there? Well, this is a biblical pattern. Happens many times in the Bible. Uh, Cultures can get bad because we're all sinners, and they can go from bad to worse. Uh, we can begin to build corrupt institutions together or break down our institutions. And what happens is sometimes culture can get so bad 
that the few righteous people left become brokenhearted and it starts to torment their souls to see what's going on outside in the world. But when this happens, every time the Lord comes and he rescues the righteous. He comes in judgment and rescues the righteous. So several times this happens in the Bible. It happens with Noah. The world around him became so dark and so violent. It said that the thought, the inclination of every person's heart was only evil and violence continually. So all anybody ever thought about was how to hurt each other. The world had gotten that bad. And Noah was tormented in his soul watching a righteous man watching all this happen. And then, though, the Lord came, he judged the whole earth, and he rescued Noah. Uh, it happens again with Lot in Sodom. The men of Sodom become so evil, indescribable things they were trying to do. Uh, some of you were with us when we read the story outside a year and a half ago. Lot, it says, was tormented in his soul over this. But the angels of the Lord came, they took Lot and his family out, they rescued him, and they judged the city. A similar thing happens to Daniel, who is up in the night confessing his sins and his father's sins. And he's just tormented over the sins of Babylon and the sins of his people back home. And the Lord brings Persia in, destroys Babylon, but takes Daniel back home into Jerusalem. He gets to live out the few last days he has there. The pattern goes on several times, and I want to point you to 1 Timothy 3, where this pattern is pointed out. Let's turn there if you don't mind. What the New Testament teaches, now remember the pattern, cultures can get very bad when they do it grieves the righteous, but the Lord will rescue them and and judge the culture. Uh, What the New Testament teaches is essentially that during the church age, we're just about always going to be there. From the time that Jesus left to the time that he comes back, that's going to be a common thing. Some of you might think this is the worst our country has ever been. It's not. It's not the worst any country has ever been. It happens all the time in the church age. And here's where he says this in second, this is second Timothy 3. Understand this, and here it is. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The last days being the church age. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, you kind of feel like he's never going to stop there. Goodness, is he going to keep going on, right? But we can see all these things going around us, right? And we might be tempted to think this is the only time it's ever been this bad. And here is Paul writing to Timothy in the first century saying, it's going to be like this till Jesus comes back. Right? The, the church age is one of those ages when the culture around us gets so bad that the hearts of the righteous are grieved. And then we see in the book of Second Peter what to do about it. Let's flip to Second Peter chapter 2. What Peter does here is he goes through the pattern I just gave you, Noah, and then Lot, and then today. And he talks about how God, in verse 4 and up to about 6, 5 or so, uh, how 
the world got very dark around Noah, but the Lord preserved and saved Noah. And then starting at verse 6, he goes to Lot, that pattern that I gave you. And then look at verse 7. This is the one that we might be able to connect with. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Is that how you feel, I wonder? Greatly distressed by the conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, hear these words, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that they saw and heard. So that's that second part of that pattern. When it gets bad, the hearts of the righteous grieve and are tormented. And we look around and say, can this really be happening around us? How long, O Lord? But the Lord rescued Lot. And verse 9 says, if he did this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So there's our, there's our hope, right? Our hearts are breaking about what's going on around us, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It will continue till Jesus comes back, but the Lord knows how to rescue us. So there's the patterns. Cultures get bad. The church age, the whole time, it's going to be pretty bad. The souls of the righteous, especially the church, those walking in holiness, are going to be tormented over that. But the Lord will rescue all of us. He will come and judge the earth and rescue his people. There's our hope. So if that's the truth, what do we, what do, we do about it? Well, back to Micah. That's what Micah shows us. Let's go back to Micah. Oops, I turned to the Psalms, not to Micah. There we are. What Micah's doing is he's giving us two examples. Here is a holy and righteous man, grieved about the wickedness around him. And he does two things that we can follow him in. First, he cries out to God. And second, he hopes in God's rescue. He cries out to God and he hopes in God's rescue. We'll spend the rest of this morning just unpacking those two. If that's the truth, here's what we do. We see that he cries out to God in the first six verses. That is his cry. That is his lament. It sounds like it came right out of the Psalms, but it's in the prophet instead. And again, like I said earlier, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, what you need to do is turn to Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer and walking in sin, unwilling to repent, what you need to do is turn and repent. But if, if you're walking in holiness, you're confessing your sin before God, your faith is in Jesus Christ, what do you need to do when your heart is grieved about the world around you? Just let that cry out to God. You don't have to hold that in. And you're not betraying God when you look up to him and say, God, can it really be this way? Can that really be happening? Could that really have happened to my son or my brother or to me? God, would you come? Would you rescue us? Would you save us? This is what Micah is doing here. This is not a dry academic paper take on this thing. He is full of tears. Woe is me. I've become corrupt. Everyone has been corrupt. I've become like that vine that's been gathered and there's no good fruit left and the godly are gone and you can't trust your wife and you can't trust your kids. And God, this is the worst. He's full of emotion. And he's giving that emotion to the Lord in real words, perhaps even in real song, as the Psalms did. That's our first model. 
This is because you were built to do that. You, you were built to take the emotions in your heart and express them out loud up to God in songs, in words, in prayers, with other things as well. So when you're full of joy, you were built to sing with joy up to God. And when you're scared, you were built to sing of that fear up to God and ask Him to rescue you. And when you feel grieved like this, you're built to lift that cry up to the Lord. In this way, you're designed like a fountain. You pump water pressure into a fountain and it just shoots water straight up, right? And when you're seeing what's going on, it's just building up water pressure in you, right? And you're just made to shoot that right up. What some of us have done is we have taken the fountain and we have filled it up with concrete. and We've stopped it, right? We don't let the Lord hear what's on our hearts. Now, what happens when you take a fountain like that? Let's say you fill it up with concrete and then you put water pressure to it. And then when nothing happens, you put more and more and more and more water pressure to it. What's eventually going to happen? It's, it's going to explode, right? And so if we're stopping up the fountain and we're not looking up to the Lord and saying, Lord, how long till you come? Lord, here is how I'm feeling about what is going on. If we're stopping up the fountain like that, what do we do? Well, Facebook rants is what we do, right? Or call up our grandkids and tell them how disappointed we are in them. Or chew out that guy on the street who you saw flick somebody off, right? The fountain gets filled up with pressure. We don't let it out to the Lord and we wind up popping on somebody else. Uh, somebody gave me really good advice for ministry when, when members do hard things to you and it grieves your heart. He said, if you don't turn to the Lord, you're going to turn on them. And it's true. When, when your heart hurts, you got to bring it up to the Lord. You have people in your life that you love. They might be doing things that hurt to you. And, and I tell you the same thing. If you don't turn to the Lord, you'll, you'll turn on them. You're made to let that out somehow. Let it up to the Lord like a proper fountain. Uh, don't, don't fill it up with concrete and wait for it to blow. You have several helps with this in the Bible. Uh, remember these numbers, 10, 12, 14. That's pretty easy to remember, right? 10, 12, 14. 10, 12, 14, because there are three psalms very close to each other that you can turn to when you feel this way, and they'll give you words. You don't have to think of words to say. The psalms will give you words. Anybody want to guess what three psalms they are? Anybody? Anybody? What three psalms? 10, 12, somebody say it. 14, there we go. Whew, man, thought I lost you for a minute there. 10, 12, and 14. Uh, I'll just read just a, a snippet of one of them for you. Verse 12, uh, Psalm 12, save Lord for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. You can watch the evening news and be grieved at what you see. And you don't have to yell at the TV. You can just open to Psalm 10, Psalm 12, Psalm 14 and just read it up to the Lord. This is how you were made to express the grief that is in your heart. Other things you can do too, uh, some of you are artistic, you can write hymn texts, you can write poems, you can make art, you can do this as an expression of worship to the Lord even. And you don't have to share it with anybody, give it up to the Lord and let him hear the song that you have written, then you don't have to worry about if anybody likes it or not, that's a nice sense of freedom there, and sing it up to God. 
some of you are in marriages or you have a roommate that you live with, that you share Christian convictions with, and you're both grieved about the same thing. Uh, maybe it's something one of your grandkids are doing or something your coworkers do, and you're both brokenhearted about it. Uh, take an issue to pray together. You can lift up those cries to the Lord together. This is how you're made to express the sorrow that's in your heart. So that's the first example Micah gives to us. We should all ask, what's a good way I can express my brokenheartedness over the state of the world to God? And go home with a resolution. This is how I will express it to the Lord. The second example we get from Micah is from verse 7. And that is, look to God's rescue. Let me read you the words of verse 7. He says, he changes tone real fast. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. How does he make it through another day? He waits on the Lord. He knows God is going to come, and God is going to save him. And Christian, you have the same hope as well. The Lord will come for us. The Lord will rescue the godly. And no matter what goes on between now and then, this ends with me and you together ruling and reigning the new creation under King Jesus Christ. If that's our hope, we can make it through another day. That's especially important for those of you that are threatened by the state of the world. It's one thing, some of us just, you know, we read about it and we get mad and that's the end of it. But some of us are trying to navigate a school system where we see things changing and we kind of wonder, am I going to make it to retirement without getting fired for what I believe, right? Like a real threat to your job and life. And I worry sometimes for my kids in the world that I'm sending them out to. If you're truly threatened by this, this is even more important. You can walk the halls of that school with confidence. Yeah, you might get fired. You might lose your job. But this, this thing ends with you reigning as a king or a queen if you hold fast to Jesus Christ. You place your hope in him, and you've got confidence no matter what anyone does to you. Now, let's say we get a new principal, and he's antagonistic toward believers. You don't have to be afraid of him, right? Because you... Tremble with joy before the Lord God in heaven who is going to make you a king or queen one day. So with that hope, we can handle the fear that we feel when we're threatened over the direction the world is, is going. So there are the two examples that holy man of God Micah gives to us. We let our cries out to God. I wonder if some of you maybe never just told the Lord how you feel about something that's going on in your life. Let it out to the Lord. And we place our hope in God who will come and who will save us. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pray together and we're going to pray through all these things and just ask the Lord, will you help us with each of these? Let's, let's pray together.